Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Good afternoon, and welcome to this American Enterprise Institute event, Should Conservatives favor child allowances. I'm Scott Winship, Director of Poverty Studies here at AEI. There are different ways of measuring uh, poverty. Um, by the official poverty measure, 10 million children uh, in the United States today are, are poor. That's about 14% of all kids. Um, regardless of how we measure it, um, there are too many poor children in America. Um, even among working and middle-class families, raising children is expensive. Raising difficult choices around work-family balance, when to marry, begin raising children, and how many children to raise. Fertility in the United States and in other rich countries has fallen markedly, raising concerns about future impacts on economic growth. Today, we're here to talk about an idea receiving a lot of attention among policymakers that seeks to address all of these issues, a child allowance, a near universal per child benefit available to families without any conditions attached. The child allowance proposals from the Biden administration, House Democrats, and Republican Senator Mitt Romney generated a lot of interest among AEI scholars. In fact, normally at an event like this, we'd bring in researchers from other organizations to make sure that we're representing multiple perspectives here. Uh, but in the case of child allowances, AEI does not lack uh, for a diversity of opinion. Um, indeed, we could have filled uh, another two panels uh, with my colleagues who have written on the topic um, beyond just the folks who you'll hear from today. Uh, so we'll have two hours this afternoon. We'll do our best to cover as much ground as possible. Um, later, we're going to have a panel moderated by Tim Carney, which I'll be joined by several of my colleagues. Uh, but uh, we'll hopefully have, have time for some uh, audience questions at the end of that panel. Um, but first, uh, I'll be interviewing AEI's president, my predecessor as director of poverty studies, uh, Robert Dorr. Um, after Robert and I chat a bit uh, about his perspective on child allowances uh, from an anti-poverty angle, we'll bring in our colleague Brad Wilcox, for some additional thoughts and reactions. And we can discuss some of the broader family policy issues related to child allowances. Well, let's get the discussion started, uh, make the most of our limited time. Hopefully it'll go more smoothly than the Golden Globes uh, did. Um, so it's my privilege to introduce American Enterprise Institute President Robert Dorr, who's also the Mordridge Scholar here. Robert was brought in in 2014 to stand up the Poverty Studies Program, which today uh, built from scratch by him is one of the most important uh, think tank programs on, on poverty and opportunity uh, currently in DC. Um, Robert became president in 2019. In his time at AEI, he served as co-chair of the National Commission on Hunger. He's also been centrally involved in all of the major cross-organizational uh, efforts in town over the last few years to develop policy agendas around reducing poverty um, expanding opportunity. Before coming to AEI, Robert was commissioner of New York City's Human Resources Administration, where he was in charge of 12 public assistance programs in a citywide bureaucracy administering them. He was also New York State Commissioner of Social Services under Governor Pataki. More than anyone, Robert can take credit for making state and city models for the implementation of welfare reform. Um, and as a fun fact, Robert, Richard Reeves, and I saw the rise of Skywalker together, which was <laughs> terrible uh, despite the good company. Um, so thank you, Robert, for uh, for joining us today. Thanks, Scott, for having me. Glad to be here. 
Great. So uh, let's see. While we've got uh, just you here, um, I wanted to start with a question um, that's really about the bio behind the bio. Um, how did you become interested in poverty and in anti-poverty policy generally? Well, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, my dad had run an anti-poverty program in central Brooklyn in Bedford-Stuyvesant that had had limited success in the 1970s when I was between the ages of seven and 12. And uh, I love New York and I love the city, but the 70s and 80s and early 90s were not a great time for the city and not a great time for low-income New Yorkers. Uh, lots of people were receiving cash assistance. Lots of people were working. Lots of families in distress and difficulty and an absence of hope uh, and upward mobility. Um, and so when I became of age in the middle mid-90s, I decided I wanted to work in the field that would expand opportunity and reduce poverty uh, in New York. And so I went to work for a new governor, Governor Pataki, uh, in 1994, right at the beginning of the reforms that became welfare reform began to take uh, hold in New York. New York, prior to those reforms, was a welfare entitlement state, a welfare rights state. Uh, benefits were granted as, right, as a matter of right, and there was very little uh, expectation of, of activity or movement toward work. And it wasn't working. People weren't happy. People who were receiving benefits weren't happy. Neighborhoods weren't strong uh, and there needed to be change. And because we had a, a governor who believed in it and a mayor who believed in it, and then we also had a president and a Congress that wanted to change cash welfare, we were able to make very significant changes there. And I was really there for the whole time. I can't take the principal responsibility. Other people were a lot more responsible than me but what happened and who was most responsible for the success were the people who had been receiving benefits. The people who, when given a message and an expectation of employment and of an effort to become independent, not completely independent, through work, went and went to work and their earnings rose. They also were, by aggressive efforts by us and by them, uh, connected to other benefits that as President Clinton used to say, made work pay. So SNAP benefits and public health insurance and childcare aid, housing assistance. We provided in the, in the spirit was, if you work, we will help you. Now, obviously we're talking about able-bodied adults, um, non-senior citizens, people who could work. And that combination of work plus benefits significantly reduced child poverty in New York state persistently over the whole period um, and had continued even after when I came to AI. And um, so I was drawn to it as a perfectly, as a desire to help people in need live more positive and flourishing lives. I wanted to treat everyone with dignity and I wanted to respect that they all had potential. And the old welfare system didn't, didn't do that. And I think what we did in New York and around the country uh, made some important progress in that regard. I want to ask you something that, that will draw on, on your uh, particular perspective, um, having really been at the forefront administering uh, some of these reforms. You hear a lot of days from progressives, um, from libertarians uh, as well, um, that the current system is too paternalistic. Um, it's, it's too inefficient. You know, we've got these, these anti-poverty budgets that get distributed to states and localities. Um, you've got a big bureaucracy that administers it. Um, why not, they say, you know, have a program like child allowances where we're, we're basically just giving families cash? Um, is there 
Is there anything that, that you would say um, uh, on the side of, uh, of, of the system that we've currently got versus a system that just gives cash to families? Well, I'd say a lot on the side of the current system compared to just cash. A cash coming from the federal government in a monthly allotment, uh, sort of not, nameless, faceless, without any human connection, misses all of the aspects of human interaction that people have with an entity that is trying to help people. Now, people, these are the sort of pesky caseworkers and no one likes hassle and no one likes offices, but think of the other side of that, individual alone, isolated on their own, having no need to, to interact. Uh, I think that's worse. Um, we weren't perfect in what we did in our engagement with individuals, but we did help a lot of people get into employment and we engaged with them. We showed a human concern for them. And I know there are lots of people that think that all should really take place and, or takes place better in faith-based organizations and community-based organizations. And I have some agreement with that, but it is naive to think that, that those organizations are really feeling that need. The principal connection with society that some people have who struggle in America is with the government, They're the, the government that provides the food stamp benefit card, the government that provides the Medicaid card, and the government that provides an office where they can be get, get help in finding work, and where they can hear a message that says independence is important. The role of government is not to make everyone a ward of the state on the day they're born. That we start as individuals, and then as we seek and need help, then we turn to government. But we don't turn to government through a computer or through some interaction with you know, we, we won't, these, these monthly benefits that they're proposing will come into households and there'll be nothing human about them at all. It'll just be cash. And they'll, and I think that's, that raises all kinds of questions with regard to whether we're really helping people. And it also misses the opportunity, you use the word paternalism, but it misses the opportunity to communicate a value about how to live a flourishing life, how to live a, a life as a better parent and as a better community, community member. Instead, we'll be agnostic about all that. It'll be, do what you want, here, you're on your own. And um, except that you're tied to the state for your financial situation. So I, I'm very concerned about that. I know that caseworkers and social workers have somehow from both the left and the right gotten a bad rap. I don't think they deserve it. It is a tough job, it's not easy. We do have to ask questions and check on people and check documents, but um, there is a role for that. And, and to just eliminate all that, I should also point out that there's no real big expense there either. The, if SNAP benefits, 5% of all the dollars we spend on SNAP is in caseworker. In cash assistance, it's a little more, partly because a lot of people have said, I don't need cash because I've got a job. So the effect of welfare reform wasn't just on people who came in the office and were helped to get a job. It also was from people who said, ah, if they're gonna expect me to go to work, if they want me to go to work, I get the message, I'll just go to work. And that's what millions of Americans did. Their earnings rose. They also were able to access benefits that made those earnings go further and poverty dropped. And I should just say about the poverty measure, you, you mentioned that Poverty measures are tricky and they are. And I really would, would recommend everyone to read the work of Bruce Meyer on the extent to which the reports that we get from the government under report the extent to which benefits 
and resources are in households. Um, there is difficulties facing families that are poor and near poor and a little bit above the poverty line, and I want to help them move up. But uh, the fact is, we do a lot already in America to raise the material well-being of individuals and families and children above that minimum poverty line. We do that if you combine all the benefits. The real question is, what are we doing to help them move further up? And I would say that a policy that just gives them cash and says, we've solved all your problems, is not going to really help them move up. Because, yeah. it's, because the way you move up is through employment. There is, that's the last thing I'll just say about this that concerns me. There is a society to work. There is a engagement with other people. There's a discipline to work. There's a social interaction to work, which is healthy, not just for the earnings you get, but from the benefits for your health, for your well-being, for your sense of community. And to, to sort of dismiss that as unimportant, um, I think is a big mistake. Yeah. The, the, the work of, uh, of Bruce Meyer is incredibly important. I think uh, the paper you're referring to, I think, is, is a, a National Bureau of Economic Research working paper that folks can find. Um, before we move on from, from this point, uh, our colleague Angela Rashidi, um, who, who you go way back with, um, ha has recently put out a piece about child support enforcement. Um, I, th I think I've heard you say things about the importance of the current system for keeping families connected too. Well, it, it at least makes an effort. The, the old line among conservatives was that the old welfare system uh, replaced the other parent, just replaced the dad, came in and said, you don't need a dad, you don't need a second parent. This is more of that and, and, and something else. Here we're completely ignoring through these child allowances the importance of the second parent. At least in the current system we have, when you seek cash assistance or you go into an office seeking aid and seeking help getting a job, um, someone engages with you about, well, where's the father? Where's the other parent? How can we help them? How can we require them to at least provide some financial aid to you and your children that is consistent with a societal expectation that children, that children should get support from both parents? That's enforcing a societal value about what children's need and, and right to have support from both parents. I know that but it's a good societal value. We should be doing that. This child allowance completely ignores the presence of another parent uh, and it just says, well, we don't care about that. The other so parent's you... not necessary. We'll, we'll provide you the aid and we won't look into it. We won't ask. Now, people can voluntarily seek that support, but having an entity that is providing aid say, this is important, sends an important message and the result of child support enforcement over the years has been billions of dollars flowing into low-income single-parent families, all good, raising their ability to afford for the needs of their children, but it's also led to greater emotional connection between that other parent who's not present. Conservatives often talk about the benefits of marriage. I do too, marriage is important, but not everyone stays married or gets married. And that shouldn't be the end of the story. You can have active and involved parents who are not necessarily married to the other parent of their child. And the Child Support Enforcement Program plays a role in making that connection more positive. Um, and so, uh, you know, again, I wanna to explain to our listeners, when you seek cash assistance, that is cash aid in any state in the United States right now, 
under the system we have now, which by the way, since 1995 has pretty much had a persistently decline in child poverty, not all the way where we wanna get, but made progress. A worker will say, when you ask for that aid, can we, can we find out about the other parent of the child? And can we see if we can find ways to help them help you and help your child? And that's a good thing. But, but getting a check or a wire transfer into a bank account on a monthly basis of $800 from the federal government, because now the federal government is in charge. Now the federal government is responsible um, to me is a dehumanization of that, that, that encounter that I think is important and it completely ignores the other parent. So there's been a lot of pushback on the idea that child allowances would actually potentially increase the number of single parent families. Um, when you think about that and you think about welfare reform and the lessons there, um, what in your view justifies worrying uh, at, least, at least a bit about um, whether or So in the previous answer, Scott, I didn't, we didn't get to that yet. I was yep. just talking about among single parent families, how's the best way to help them have a more healthy family environment for their children, whether they get married or not. Sure. I mean, if all we're going to do is send them money and, and pray they get married, that doesn't seem to me to make much sense. We want to get connections with the other parent. Um, I, I haven't, my view is, is that um, we need to be careful. The reduction in teen pregnancy, which is not well understood in the public, but well understood, I think, in the academic and policy world since the 1990s, is really a remarkable social policy achievement. Uh, the, 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 the problem of many, many, many kids having kids before they were ready, when they were still teenagers, was a serious problem then. Um, through a lot of factors, a lot of activities, not all related to welfare reform, but partly related to welfare reform, we sent a message that the government would not step in and solve all problems and pay for all the expenses and all the costs, that there were responsibilities that came with parenthood. And that changed behavior in part. Other things changed behavior too, but that had a role. And I think now when we say to young people, have a child and we'll guarantee you you know, as soon as, soon as the next month, an additional payment um, uh, uh, to help you support that child, that's gonna, that's gonna become something they hear and they listen. I think it's important to understand the, the significant role government policy plays in low-income households, sort of view of the world. The ITC has played a big role, it rewards work. It comes in the middle of March or April or May after you pay your taxes. That's changed the way people think about the IRS and taxes. Um, you can start getting a monthly payment and then you know it and your neighbors know it and your, and your family members know it. And I just think there runs a risk of undermining the message, which is a good message, which is young people need to think carefully about decisions concerning pregnancy because they will have responsibilities themselves for that child. And uh, their, 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 their partner will have responsibilities. And now we have a policy which is gonna say, no, the federal government's responsible. And, and I would just say, that's a, one other thing that I think is underappreciated. I'm a state, a former state social services worker. We're not perfect. There isn't any question about that, but we, we play a role in the, what's called the state federal partnership in 
programs for low-income Americans. It's an important role. It's a role closer to the people than the federal government. And here again, this policy goes right around them and right by them and ignores them. And I think that's a mistake. I believe in the concept that government that's closest to the people can be the most effective in helping people. But if you, if you box them out, if you don't include them, if you ignore them, and if you give them no role, then they can't do the work that, um, I know it's hard for some conservatives to believe, but the fact is state social services agencies and local social service agencies all across America do play a positive role in helping Americans get into employment and increase their income, both by helping them get to work and by connecting them to work supports that help to make that work go farther. Last question before we bring, bring Brad on, um, putting on your political hat. Is it a good thing for conservatives, you think, that we've got a Republican proposal uh, for child allowances on the table now as well, um, in addition to the, the Democratic proposals? Um, the, the politics of this is tricky uh, and worrisome to me. Um, it's an, old, it's an old practice in politics concerning these issues to, um, to, to for, for Democrats to sort of see if they can get a Republican to take a position that, that supports what they really want, which is greater transfer payments and greater, pay, greater uh, uh, government assistance to low-income Americans. And here, Senator Romney and other Republicans have sort of joined in and the Romney proposal is not gonna be law. There isn't any question that that's not going to happen. But the Romney proposal, the idea that Republicans support increasing by $100 billion transfer payments to low-income Americans, regardless of how, whether they work or what their situation is, um, will be used to show, well, it must be okay because Republicans, some Republicans like it. And so I feel it's kind of a, a, a little bit of a game. Um, and, and, and unfortunate. Now, listen, I'm a Republican who has uh, been guilty of this myself. I've been engaged in lots of discussions and I've tried hard to find common ground and I greatly admire Senator Romney, really greatly admire him. But I worry that he's being, his, 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 his spirit is being taken advantage of um, because what, what's going to happen, I'm afraid, is the proposal the Democrats really want is going to pass. And we're gonna introduce a big new federal transfer payment um, that doesn't ask about employment, that doesn't provide any kind of assistance and ignores the absent parent um, and goes right around the state and local authorities that are, I think, better positioned to help people in need. And they'll do it and they'll say why they're doing it. Yeah, but that Republican liked it. So it must not be that bad. And I just think that's unfortunate. Now, one thing we haven't met, mentioned before we bring Brad in, you didn't ask me about employment as much, it seemed to me. And I think that there's a, there's a, there's a, I'm not positive that we're going to go back to 50% or 55% labor force participation among never married mothers. We had risen up to more than 70% as a result of these welfare reform policies. Um, but I think we'll go back somewhere because there is, there's just a, it's just a truth. If you work in, a, in an agency like I did in New York City, you just know if the benefits are greater without a requirement of work, the incentive to work is lower and people will be, be more reluctant to engage in employment. And I, and I 
I want to say one last thing about this. It's not clear to me that the combination of employment for a young mother or a young single parent could be a dad as a result of these requirements and childcare for the child is necessarily a bad thing. It's not, it's not clear to me that um, providing money to a single parent so they can stay home alone in a household which may have other issues. Remember, single parents in this circumstance that would be receiving this benefit that are the parents that I was working with, they often are didn't do so well in high school, not as likely to have a high school degree, certainly not much college, had a child at a young age before they were ready. Substance abuse could be a factor. Is, is To the degree that substance abuse is part of these family circumstances, much higher than people recognize or want to pay attention to. Employment helps all of those things and childcare can help the child. And I think the proponents of this policy have a sort of naive view of these households that just doesn't comport with reality. And that may say paternalistic, it may sound like I'm imposing cultural values, but I'm speaking for the HRA workers, the New York City social services workers who came from high minority communities, low income communities and worked in our offices and believed more strongly than I do that they needed to say to people who came to them from their communities, we need to help you get a job. We need to help you get your child into childcare. We need to help you get into substance abuse treatment. And by the way, that connection with a social worker is one way you uncover issues concerning substance abuse, which can get someone into care. And again, Washington sending a check every month doesn't have the ability to see that or do anything about it. Well, I want to bring in um, Brad Wilcox. Um, Brad's a visiting scholar at AEI, but his main gig is uh, professor of sociology at the University of Virginia. Um, together, Brad and I actually constitute 40% of the nation's center-right sociologists. So that's, that's <laughs> exciting. Um, Brad's also a senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies. He's one of the nation's leading scholars of, uh, of the family and has published several books uh, and, a, and a slew of studies on a variety of topics related to the family. Um, Brad, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. Um, just wanted to uh, start out maybe by getting your reaction to, uh, to some of Robert's comments and, um, and we can see uh, what, what kind of time we've got for an exchange. Uh, sure, thanks to, to you, Scott, and to Robert and AI for having this important conversation. Um, I wanna, I guess, begin, uh, Robert, by underlining my um, kind of agreement with you that we should be kind of keeping an eye here on the history of American social welfare policy. Um, because, you know, there's no question that one of the unintended consequences of the expansion of cash welfare in the 60s and 70s was an increase in non-marital childbearing um, and single parenthood. So, you know, I'm cognizant of that issue. I think it's an issue we should be thinking about, talking about um, as we address this new policy issue before us. But I want to take the conversation in, in a bit of a different direction, Scott um, and Robert and kind of pull back here and think about kind of the family across the entire country uh, as an institution. And just to kind of be, you know, begin my own comments here by, by making the point that, and if I can get my PowerPoint here going as well, that'd be great. Um, and we can go to uh, you know, the next slide here, please, would be great. I just wanna kind of let people sort of realize as we're sort of having this conversation about family policy in America, 
that, you know, the family is in crisis in a way. Um, you know, we're kind of at a turning point here when it comes to marriage and family life in America. So if you take, for instance, the marriage rate, what you can see here is that the marriage rate has reached a record low in, in actually in, in 2020. Um, it's never, never been this low ever in our country. Um, and the same basic pattern holds when it comes to the fertility rate. Um, so we're seeing that the, the fertility rate in America has really actually dropped probably below 1.65, um, particularly with, with COVID and, and you know, um, having its additional impact. So the point I want to begin making here is that sort of we're in danger as a country of kind of potentially getting on a path that we've seen play out in, in, in Asia and countries like Japan, where, you know, there's just so many people not getting married, not having kids, that, um, you know, that there's just lots of, of um, you know, problems, people kind of flying solo in life, and there are economic problems in terms of you know, the implications it has for growth. There are implications, obviously, for things like loneliness, you know, in our society. But the point I want to make here is that we're moving to a world here in the U.S. where family formation is just headed towards unprecedented lows. So I think it's a kind of a different moment that we're facing now um, than was the case back in the 60s and 70s or even 90s, you know, um, when we were looking at um, you know, welfare reform, for instance, in, in the mid-1990s. So that's sort of one point that I want to make here. And so the issue is sort of how do we kind of give families, you know, more confidence um, to go ahead with marrying, to go ahead with having children. Um, and it's certainly the case that sort of part of our problem today is cultural and political. You know, it's certainly the case that the sort of tales that are told by our storytellers, the tales that are told by our lawmakers, in a sense, um, you know, really conform to what we know to be the truth about marriage and family life, even um, in the 21st century. But part of our, I think, our, our problem today when it comes to sort of family formation is economic. You know, too many men today, especially working class men, um, are having difficulty finding and keeping decent paying stable jobs. The costs of raising a family from education to healthcare have largely outpaced the growth in median wages, especially for men. And we are seeing that kind of these stagnant economic fortunes for too many working class, too many middle class families are shaping their approach to marriage and family life. One new survey found that working and middle class Americans say the leading reason they're not having children today is, quote, I don't think I could afford to, unquote. And sadly, I have to say, when it comes to addressing these economic challenges, the right has largely been AWOL. We talk a good game about family, but we haven't really walked the walk when it comes to family policy. We all know, for instance, that when push came to shove in the tax reform of 2017, tax credits for big business trumped the major expansion of the child tax credit that was favored at the time by Senators Mike Lee and Marco Rubio. Now, as we think about these kind of issues, it's of course the case that some on the right think that civil society can kind of lead the way um, when it comes to reviving family in America. We have to kind of acknowledge today that 2021 is definitely not Alexis de Tocqueville's America. That's particularly true for working class and middle class Americans. Take for instance, religion. What this slide shows us using data from the general social survey is that 
religious attendance has reached a 50 year nadir in our country. And this is because we have data from 19, basically 72 until the present. So you know, I don't think we have the kind of civil society that's sort of prepared right now to sort of step in and help lead the revival of marriage and family life in America. So it's in that kind of context, we need to think in a kind of a more Hamiltonian way to sort of think about how the state can help us to rebuild families. And here I wanna be very clear, I don't have a kind of progressive view. Um, I'm, I'm not looking for universal childcare. I'm not looking for more measures that will kind of put parents you know, into, the, you know, into the labor force you know, more and more um, and to spend less time with their kids. We need less workism and we need more familism when it comes to public policy in America. So that's why I'm, I think, really intrigued by some of these new ideas coming from people like Senator Mitt Romney with his uh, Family Security Act, but also I'm intrigued too by Arne Cass's Family Income Supplemental Credit because what they're suggesting here is we need to think about the economic fortunes of families across the board. Um, not just poor families like Robert's been talking about, but working class and middle class families as well, and giving them additional sort of support uh, when it comes to the challenges today of, of raising um, their own families. So let me just close here by saying that, you know, I'm not concerned in the way that Robert is about how there could be consequences when it comes to, for instance, Romney's plan um, with respect to, uh, to non-marital childbearing and single parenthood, um, and really for, for three reasons. Um, the first reason is that unlike welfare of yesteryear, Romney's plan does not penalize marriage for working class Americans. So a mom who was making $15,000 a year would not lose anything in Romney's plan if she married a man, for instance, who was making $35,000 a year. So she would not be penalized in this plan like she would have been back in the older welfare regime. That's the first point. Uh, the second point that I make is that 2021 is not 1996, nor is it 16, sorry, 1966. A lot has changed in the last few decades. Um, childbearing, of course, is way down, but also even sex is way down among young adults, um, including among poor working class adults. And so it's for, for that reason in part that I don't think a child allowance that would offer parents about $300 per month, depending upon the plan, will lead to a dramatic uptick in the number of single women who are having a child on their own in today's different economic and cultural milieu. Now, the third thing that I would say is that the evidence we have from other countries that have implemented a child allowance, like Canada, for instance, suggests that this kind of increased spending on kids um, was not linked to any kind of surge in nominal childbearing. Um, so it's for these kinds of reasons that I'm not worried that a Romney-style child allowance will lead to a surge in single parenthood in this nation. So that is also why I think that a child allowance could be an important first step in reviving the flagging fortunes of family life in America. So that is why I am open to this new child allowance uh, yeah. from Senator Romney. Scott, can I just comment a little bit? Uh, first of all, Brad, thank you. Uh, as you know, you and I, you were probably the first good friend among AI scholars I made, and I admire your work tremendously and, and, and really appreciate this presentation. Um, I want to be clear, there are issues concerning promoting 
marriage and reducing marriage penalties and encouraging and supporting families that are married to have children that I don't disagree with Brad. But the problem is, is that the child allowance proposal that is going to become law, unfortunately, I'm really worried about that, um, is got, a, takes the, the child allowance down to zero income, no attachment to work, and will have an impact in low income families. It may have income in middle income families that Brad likes, but I'm not as concerned about them. I'm, I like them, I care about them, but that's not the world I come from. It's not where I devoted my career to and where we made such progress, but we have more to make. So I think in some ways, Brad and I are talking by each other. We sort of agree, um, uh, we sort of agree on everything, but we're not, but I just think we got to face up to this, the impact of the, of the act that's really gonna take place, which is the total refundability down to zero income for any parent regardless of marital status. Um, and I think that's gonna make a big change in, in welfare policy. The Romney proposal eliminated TANF. He just eliminated it. And that by, in that way, he also eliminated the child support connection and the, and the requirement to discuss with the parent. And it did do a federal takeover. And that all makes me nervous. You know, I don't disagree that there shouldn't be, um, that there are things we could do for lower middle class and middle class families to help them afford the cost of children that might be good public policy. I should point out, we've done a lot of that. Child allowances have been around. They have that chart that, that Brad just showed me, we could put up the, the persistent increases in child allowances and pro-family tax policy that the United States has put in place, which appears to have had no effect yet. Um, and, and, I, and I'm a little skeptical that it's gonna have there are other forces that are at work here besides taxes and federal transfers on middle-class families. Um, but when you come to benefits, you, as Brad admitted, in the 60s and 70s, the, the availability of, of benefits for low-income families did play a role in the rise of non-marital births. And we can't pretend that might not happen again. So I wanna make sure the panel has enough time too, but um, Brad, before we go, um, conservatives talk a lot about single parenthood. Are, are we are we too obsessed with single parenthood uh, in general? Why why does that matter for why does it matter whether uh, a, a policy does or doesn't uh, lead to to more single parenthood? Yeah, I mean, Scott, I think the obvious point that one could make today is that when you look at, for instance, the work of Raj Chetty, um, what his work, for instance, shows us is that the number one predictor. Uh, when you look at communities and you look at neighborhoods for mobility, for poor kids from, you know, from rags to riches um, in, in their community is the share of single parent families. So this is one reason why kids who are, you know, growing up in Charlotte, for instance, are more likely to be stuck in poverty as they move into adulthood. By contrast, kids who are being raised in the Salt Lake City metro area are much more likely to make it up and out. Um, because there are more two-parent families in, in the Salt Lake area than there are in the, in the Charlotte area. So, um, you know, there are other things we could talk about, but it's, I think, interesting to know there's been a lot of focus, you know, in the last couple of years on Raj Chetty's work, on thinking about mobility and communities and neighborhoods. And yet, when we actually talk about those issues, we, we tend to minimize, again, the number one finding, which is that, you know, it's those communities that have more two-parent families that are the ones more likely to be propelling kids up and out. And so this is why, among other reasons, we should be 
thinking and talking about um, new ideas, I think, different ideas to strengthen families. I mean, just to respond briefly to Robert, I think that, you know, one point I would make is that um, having kind of a monthly uh, payment sort of changes the calculus for a lot of, I think, working class families who might be struggling from paycheck to paycheck. That's also something that's different about this newer approach. Um, and then again, I, you know, Robert, I'm just not convinced that in this new moment that we're kind of living in, um, a moment where there's uh, just markedly cultural and economic, you know, um, you know, things going on today as compared to say 1996 or an earlier era, I, I'm just not sure we're gonna see, you know, based upon evidence from Canada, for instance, a dramatic change in, in single parenthood as a consequence of this new policy idea. So that's sort of- Well, I, I hope you're right. I don't, I, I, I don't agree. I don't, I, I'm not as hopeful as you are with regard to this impact in, in especially low-income communities. I think the Raj Chetty finding, which you and I have talked about and we've talked about a lot, and you summarize it exactly correctly, is an argument to not do the full refundability down to zero without any attention to work. Um, it would, if, you, if you read that finding, then you would have to say, why would we take the risk of, of um, reducing the importance of fathers in children's lives and their role in kids' lives and taking it away from that importance of two parents and just say, a parent can get this benefit regardless of their circumstance and without being asked about the other parent. But, you know, we'll see, I guess maybe we'll see whether this impact. I do think it, the Canada, Canada analogy isn't quite apt. The United States is different from Canada. Um, I'd have to look closely at that, but I, you know, I'm with you, Brad. I, I'm hoping people, more people, um, you know, will, more couples will get married and have children and, and I think in that circumstance, our country will be stronger, but uh, I don't think this is the policy that's gonna make that happen. We gotta do some other things and we need to be more explicit about our, our recognizing the importance of marriage, in my opinion. So re regrettably, uh, that's, that's gonna have to be the last word, I think. Um, thank you both so much. I uh, wish we could have uh, gone, on, gone on for longer, but had to make all sorts of tough decisions around this event. Um, so, so Brad, uh, Robert, thank you again um, for uh, a great conversation. Um, probably be, to be continued around the, the virtual halls of, of AEI anyway. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.